Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. In this episode, we're asking why the party is going after its tech billionaires. Jack Ma, then China's richest man, was the first in the party's sights. He disappeared for three months shortly after Alibaba's listing of Ant Group on the Shanghai Stock Exchange was scuppered by state banks. The $37 billion IPO would have been the largest in history. The real reason may have been a speech he gave in October when he said that China didn't have a financial system and that state banks had a pawn shop mentality that was killing private enterprise. Since then, China's tech billionaires have been cut down to size. With regulators shaking up every big tech platform, from TikTok's ByteDance to food delivery platform Meituan, just when China needs its national internet champions to sell what Xi Jinping calls a more credible, lovable, and respectable China, it seems bent on attacking its homegrown tech giants. The once cozy relationship between private tech companies and the state looks to be on the rocks. But is it divorce, or are they, as Ross and Rachel famously put it in Friends, just taking a break? To answer this, we're joined by Angela Jung from the University of Hong Kong, Roger Kremers from Leiden University, and John Lee from the Makata Institute of Chinese Studies. This episode was recorded live as part of the ANU's Digital Politics in Asia series. I started by asking, what does the Chinese government hope to achieve by going after these tech giants? Um, well, in the media, this has been depicted as a way for the Chinese government to、uh, control its tech giants, given their outsized influence in our lives,、um, and a way to suppress their political influence as well. But from my perspective, there are clear, legitimate、um, policy reasons why the government wants to rein in these companies. The problem here is. Why is there such a dramatic and sudden shift of regulatory intensity that gives the impression that you know the whole thing was very political, and、um, and and I believe that this dramatic、uh, regulatory shift actually is deeply ingrained in China's unique political、uh, structure, where the regulatory agencies tend to act in tandem with the central leadership. Whereas essential leadership, on the other hand, lacks information, so they don't usually act until the last minute when the crisis looms, and that explains, you know, why you always see this kind of very sudden and violent and intensive shift of policy agenda in China.、Um, Rodier, would you like to add to that? Yes. I'm not sure to what extent it is a completely dramatic shift. I remember, you know, when we were still able to go to China before the plague. I was in China in 2019, and a number of conversations that I had there with experts and academics already referred to the fact that a head of steam was building in regulatory bodies、uh, against these companies. But you know the way that this works is you don't really see the head of steam building, particularly when you're on the outside, and it's only really when the pressure reaches the tipping point that a number of things happen at the same time. And you then get what seems like a very dramatic switch, but it's been it's been building over time. And I think there have been a couple of contributing factors.、Uh, some policy, some personal.、Uh, Policy-wise, I think the Chinese government has been 
rather concerned about the potential impact, particularly of uh, and financials activities on credit growth in China. One of the things that Beijing has learned from the 2008 financial crisis is you want to keep the financial system in its box. You don't want it to get out of control and infect the real economy, right? So it needs to be kept within a sphere where it acts as a handmaiden to the real economy as opposed to becoming a prime venue for capital accumulation in its own right. And so this was one very big reason for the People's Bank of China to intervene in the financial side. Uh, but there was also a concern about the fact that these companies were just getting too powerful and therefore monopolistic in its own right. And all kinds of problems result from that. Partially, it's not good for consumers, as monopolies tend to be. But partially, you need to see this in the light of China's ambition to become a technology superpower. And one of the things that China noticed, uh, both in its study of uh, the tech industry abroad, as well as in its observation of the domestic tech industry, is that the bigger and the more monopolistic these companies become, the less they themselves invest in R&D, the more eager they are to purchase uh, small emerging startup competitors um, who might actually be innovative. And so the Chinese government saw this as something that is deleterious, particularly at a point in time where Chinese internet businesses are really seen as members of, quote unquote, Team China. In this enormous effort to gain global technological leadership, uh, particularly in the light of uh, US sanctions. Now, that's obviously the policy side. Then you've got the personal side. You know, Jack Ma is one of the most mediagenic CEOs out there. And uh, as the old proverb goes, there can only be one red sun in the sky. And I think uh, Jack Ma flew slightly too close to it on wings made of wax to mix a metaphor or two. <laughs> I mean, John, I'm really glad Rogier raised the question of the real economy, because that's what you look at with your research. You look at sort of the hardware side of things. I mean, is there any prospect of the Chinese government getting these uh, companies to, um, if you like, invest in the real economy rather than investing in kind of uh, platforms that, uh, that they seem to distrust? Well, they already are, Graham. In the case of Alibaba, last year they claimed to have released the world's most powerful computer processor based on the open source RISC-V architecture, for example. So I certainly agree with my two panelists in that, um, firstly, there are good technocratic reasons for these actions. And of course, we have to put this in global context. There's a global discussion about the negatives of big internet platform monopolies and the need to regulate them. And um, Europe is more advanced than the United States in this respect. I'm actually calling from London at the moment, but if we're talking about the European Union, um, are more intrusive uh, arguably than what's going on in China. Um, and then, of course, one can't discount the political factor. Um, Roger, I think, has coined the term cyber-Leninism, but that's always the operating principle here, that um, there is only one ruling powerful authority in China. Um, and certainly based on media report, really was um, Xi Jinping's personal displeasure with Jack Ma's speech, which was the trigger here. But um, as Roger pointed out, um, there has been a good head of steam building for this. And if we want to bring it back to the real economy, then you only need to look at what's in the 14th five-year plan, for example, and indeed in Xi Jinping's speeches and other key policy statements and um, speech by the MWIT director at the Chinese um, People's Political Conservative Conference back in March as well, for example. Um, there is a lot of emphasis on the real economy and the need for the digital platform companies to serve that. And if we come back to the idea of Team China, these companies already have the resources to contribute there. They're already developing the next generation computer processes, the cloud architecture. Um, 
they don't need to expand further in China. Indeed, um, at this point, you could say that there aren't many productive niches for them left to fill. All that they're doing is building regulatory risk if they continue expanding their operations. And Angela, I mean, your, your focus um, for a long time has been on these regulatory bodies that uh, regulate antitrust law in China. And reading your work, I mean, one of the things that's come through right from the beginning is that these bodies are generally pretty under-resourced in terms of personnel uh, and in terms of expertise. But there seems to have been a, a huge shift that's gone on as a, a, as a result of, of what's happened over the last year. I mean, do you think these bodies that have been pretty low-key up until now have the capacity to take on companies that are, you know, capitalised at more than half a trillion dollars? I mean, are, are a few bureaucrats in Beijing really going to be able to sort of take on these companies and engineer the restructuring? Well, Chinese regulatory authorities are indeed um, very resource-restrained. And currently in Beijing, the Anti-Monopoly Bureau have around 40 staff members. So that is a very sharp contrast to, uh, you know, the EU, the European commissions, where you have, you know, almost 800 staff, maybe a thousand now. And whereas in the United States, where I mean, Department of Justice and the FTC also have you know, over a thousand staff member. So how could you possibly have around 40, you know, something small bureau to fight against a company like Alibaba. Well, I mean, in the case of Alibaba, this case was prosecuted at a lightning speed. If you look at the previous um, precedents involving big abuse dominance cases, like the case against Qualcomm uh, investigated between 2013 and 2015, it takes like about a year or two. But this case against Alibaba took only four months. And actually, I think the case was done as soon as it was announced. Because on the day the agency announced the decision, you observe Alibaba stock prices uh, drop over 13%, which wiped up over 100 billion US dollars of its market cap. And that's carefully planned in advance um, because the Chinese agency, because of the resource restraint, and they have been very adept at using media strategy to uh, put pressures on companies and entice them to cooperate with the agency. And you see Alibaba immediately reacted that we will actively cooperate. And when the fine and the penalty decision was released, the firm actually thanked the regulator um, for imposing a $2.8 billion fine. And the market rebounded, right? I mean, because the market predicted even worse. The, the firm expressed gratitude to the agency for imposing a $2.8 billion fine, which is still relatively small and, and manageable for a company like Alibaba. And I mean, the, the, the people who were hauled in, it was like a who's who of every single Chinese tech company, but there was one notable exception. Um, there was no sign of Huawei being brought to book. Uh, is, is there any prospect of Huawei um, facing the same sort of um, scrutiny and pressure? So... It depends on first, whether they have been a very active complainant against Huawei in China. And second, I believe that um, even if our Chinese antitrust authority is seldom subject to judicial oversight, meaning that very few parties uh, challenge the agency directly, they are faced with very severe bureaucratic constraint. And that's another important constraint that they face. So the fact that Huawei is now a national champion and is truly China's most innovative company does impose constraint on the agency in the sense that the agency does not want to take any regulatory action that is deemed to be in contravention with the national economic agenda. 
I think that also explains why previously the agency have taken such a lax and tolerant approach in regulating the big tech industry. Uh, Roger, you want to add to that? Well, on top of that, I think we shouldn't forget that there is a really big essential difference between Huawei and the other companies, and that is, at least for the moment, all that Huawei does is it makes gadgets that it puts in boxes and ships to consumers. And it doesn't really have a monopolistic position in that regard, right? It's a big, powerful tech firm, no, uh, no doubt about that. But it doesn't have the 90 plus percent market share that uh, Alibaba and Tencent have in some of their respective markets. So I think it's less of an anti-competition issue. But also, when you look at it the way that regulators came after Alibaba's financial services, it is really politically safe to put stuff in boxes and ship them to consumers in comparison with delivering particular services. Now, this may well change. Uh, next month, um, Huawei is presenting Harmony OS, its own uh, operating system, which it wants to put on its phones. And the idea is that it wants to go uh, and compete with Android, uh, most notably in the sense that it will also offer this to other smartphone companies, unlike Apple, which uh, tightly in integrates this. Obviously, there have been some comments about how original uh, Harmony OS really is. But the point is, Huawei is now moving into software and Huawei may well be moving into services. And this is the point in time where Huawei will be getting a lot more consumer data. Huawei will be getting into a lot more activities that have broader relevance than just, you know, as I said, putting stuff in boxes and shipping them to consumers. So that is a point in time where that political calculus may well shift. But in the meantime, in comparison to Tencent and Alibaba, there are far fewer politicized consequences that emerge from Huawei's current business activities. I mean, Roshi, I'm really glad you raised that point because this gets to another side of the, the attack on the, uh, the tech companies or the, the sort of confronting of the tech companies. And it gets to the huge amounts of personal data that they're all, um, they're all amassing. So the second draft of what China calls the personal information protection law is out. But what I'm curious about to, to hear from you guys is, is this law really about privacy for um, Chinese citizens? And, and what will this law potentially do to restrain um, both the tech companies and the Chinese government? You know, the word privacy is a really interesting one uh, because we sort of throw it around as though it means it might mean the same thing in China as it means here. And that really isn't the case. So I'm coming at it from a European perspective where after the Second World War, we've come to see privacy as a fundamental right. So it is a right that is vested in me as an individual where anything that I want to keep private, it is my entitlement. And I have that entitlement against other private individuals, against companies and against the state. In China, the notion of fundamental rights doesn't really meaningfully exist within the legal system. It exists on paper, but in, in reality, it's, it's you know not quite there. So the Chinese legal system works in a far more instrumental and goal-oriented manner. So the question isn't how do we create a right and protect it? The question is how do we create legal regimes that help us go to where we want to go? That is one thing. So what you see is that the personal information protection law, there's a second law that is sort of developed in tandem with it, the data security law. They really aren't about creating fundamental rights and protecting them. They're about 
figuring out the role of data protection within the bigger picture of China's development program, looking towards the horizon to see where China wants to go and meticulously structuring these relationships in such a way that that works. The second thing is that China actually has a word for privacy, uh, but from a sort of legal terminological point of view, it actually is far more narrowly defined in China than privacy tends to be in, in Europe or the West more broadly. Uh, Yinsu tends to refer to information about yourself that you would like to keep confidential. And if you look at its definition in the civil code, it talks about, you know, pictures of your house or pictures of the more interesting bits of your body. So these sort of things. It, ha it has a lot to do with confidentiality, partially because historically there's a very strong connotation attached of shame. Whereas personal information protection isn't really about shameful information, right? One's email address or one's telephone number isn't really shaming something. It's more about identifiability and user control over how they can be identified by whom. And so the whole point of the personal information protection law is to rebalance the power that individual users have, particularly vis-a-vis -vis tech companies, to decide how they want to be identified. And that responds to a number of concerns uh, in Chinese society, which have been you know, vast, uh, ranging from concerns about data theft and data-enabled fraud to automated decision-making where it comes to marketing and push notifications to data trading. Essentially, it says something like, government departments, uh, when collecting and processing data, shall abide by the law and shall get consent from the individual, except where the correct fulfillment of their duties and responsibilities uh, means that this is not possible. I'm paraphrasing, but that's pretty much what it says. And partially, you know, that's because, again, the Chinese government is a huge, vast bureaucratic machine so what I fully expect, in fact, which is already happening, is that we're going to get a whole raft of administrative regulations coming out with all kinds of schedules and catalogs, uh, which will meticulously define which government department has access to which kind of data and what is the level of consent that they need to get. And we're not really going to get that or we're going to get one with very wide exemptions for domestic police and security services. I mean, John, a question for you. I mean, with this law, I mean, what are the bureaucratic drivers behind it? And, and also, what are the implications beyond China's borders? Like, what implications does it have, say, for the, the global flow of information? Well, I think that Rogier has already touched on the Chinese public's um, displeasure with the use and abuse of their data by the large tech companies. Um, it might be worth noting that the companion law that Rogier has mentioned, the draft data security law, also makes extensive provisions relating to the creation of national data markets. Um, so that's interesting given the stereotype that China has a huge pool of data which it can weaponize to overtake the US and Europe technologically. Um, a lot of this stuff is instrumental and is designed towards further developing the Chinese digital economy in the ways that the authorities want. But if we come to the international picture, then it might be worth noting that both those draft laws, the personal information protection law and data protection law, have extraterritorial provisions. And they also uh, contain provisions relating to reciprocal punitive action against foreign actors which have harmed the interests of Chinese citizens or entities. 
So I think that that really needs to be borne in mind when we're talking about foreign businesses operating in China or indeed um, engaging in interactions with Chinese actors outside China, um, that this is essentially the same principle that was brought in with the Hong Kong national security law last year, for example, where at least on a literal wording of the clause and its current form, um, action could be taken against any individual anywhere in the world, potentially, for anything relating to uh, an exchange of data with a Chinese actor. Now, how that plays out in practice, of course, is um, something that remains to be seen. But among other things, the draft data security law also introduces or makes reference to an export control regime for data related to um, certain categories of items from China, how that relates to China's new export control. Unified regime also um, is not entirely clear at this point. What we can say as a general principle is that the Chinese authorities um, have been increasing regulatory control over cyberspace for the last, let's say, eight or nine years um, in particular, and that this is simply the logical extension of that. And I mean, your research, Angela, sort of almost has a, a, a parallel to this when you looked in antitrust terms at what happens to Chinese companies when they go abroad and try to operate in, in quite different uh, legislative environments. And one of the arguments you make very strongly is that, um, and I think it's important for our audience here to hear, um, is that Western governments uh, such as Australia um, both kind of overreact and underreact, if I can put it that way, in terms of their um, attempts to manage these uh, these these companies um, beyond China's borders. Could you maybe flesh out what you uh, what you mean by that? So, given that Chinese companies increasingly active, uh, like either making investments in overseas market or selling to overseas market, they do run into a lot of antitrust problems. And one of the issues that they have in Europe. Is, um, is how do you define the scope of a Chinese companies? And actually, this is a very basic question that is the starting point for any antitrust analysis because you need, before you do any um, assessment um, about competitive assessment, you do need to know, you know, am I looking at this specific company or am I looking at a broader, you know, China Inc., uh, so to speak. And the commission really had a very difficult time trying to figure out um, what is the boundary of a Chinese firm, given the fact that it appears the Chinese government can exert greater control over its companies, whether we are talking about state-owned firms or even private firms and now even tech firms, right? I mean, so that does give rise to suspicion among the foreign policy makers about how to define the scope of a company. Because the irony is that when you do look at the Chinese market, the companies do compete very fiercely, right? I mean, so it's, it, it will be an over-inclusive um, you know, conclusion to say all Chinese companies should be deemed one single firm um, because they do, in fact, compete fiercely with each other, including the, the largest state-owned firms. So the, the fact that ownership may have very tenuous relationship with the actual control the government could have over a firm's business, whereas our regular, usual regulatory emphasis is on ownership, right? I mean, so, so the commission don't intervene, you know, if, if this, this firm is not a state-owned firm and, and wouldn't take a different approach in inviting those cases. So that may also lead to an under-inclusive problem. Right? I mean, so China does present kind of like a paradoxical target to foreign policymakers, given the, the, the pervasive control the government could have over its companies. And I mean, Roger, to like 
keep this focus overseas. Um, I mean, in addition to the ownership of Chinese companies, a, a big concern of, of Western governments um, has been around this desire that's been um, stated in the Made in 2025 um, document and also um, rather more notoriously in um, Huawei's um, new IP that it submitted to the uh, International Telecommunications Union. This idea that China and Chinese companies are obsessed with setting standards. I mean, do, do you think this concern about China looking to control tech standards um, is a legitimate one? I, I think the whole standards thing is something that is uh, very much oversold. I just like to talk a little bit about the, this whole notion of uh, China wants to set standards using new IP as an example. So we have this big concern that, you know, setting the standards really means setting the rules for the Internet. And so um, somewhere last year, there was a report in the Financial Times, which essentially said, you know, Huawei and the Chinese government have uh, a new standard for the Internet, and it's going to be rammed down all of our throats at the next meeting of the ITU. It's wonderful scaremongering, but the problem is that pretty much every claim made there is problematic. For starters, the ITU doesn't do internet standards. That's the purview of an organization called the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force. Two, the new IP documents that Huawei presented were extremely preliminary, right? Didn't even really contain a lot of strong technical content. Rather, it was some basic ideas to start thinking about a new way of building networks which will be necessary to really support the Internet of Things. And that is something that Huawei is certainly not the only company, you know, doing this. But then there's a the whole idea that the Chinese can just ram this down our throat in about half a year's time, which is nonsense. That's not how these organizations work. They work on the basis of consensus. And yes, China's participation has been growing, but China really doesn't have preponderance in any of them, particularly at the senior level. I mean, you could say that Huawei has about 10% of the patents uh, in, 5G, in the 5G standard. Depending on how you count it, that may well be true. But that also means that 90% of the 5G standard isn't held by Huawei. So I think with the whole standards thing, we, we really, really oversell this. But it is wonderful fear-mongering. And if you are, you know, a consulting company or a government department that really wants more budget to look into this, you know, it's, 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 it's a perfect justificatory panicky story. Hmm. I mean, John, one thing to, to sort of slightly readjust this question for you is, you know, the, the investment by the Chinese government is, is real. You've got a report coming out soon um, with Merricks on the uh, Internet of Things, um, which details some quite staggering numbers in terms of China's investment in 5G. Um, so as one example, uh, Shenzhen now has 46,000 5G base stations, which compares to just over 800 in Germany, for example. Um, I mean, what are China's vulnerabilities and, and can throwing this, uh, this sort of money um, at these, uh, these projects pay off in the long run? Um, do you think the Chinese state, just by, if you like, sheer force of money and will, can, uh, can make up for its technological vulnerabilities? We really need to keep this in perspective. Um, if we're talking about the efficacy of Chinese industrial policy, um, whether throwing enough money at the wall means enough will stick that they achieve their goals. I don't know whether this will work for the next generation of digital technologies. In some areas, perhaps. Um, but when we're talking about uh, the most sophisticated and difficult areas, like semiconductors, another field that I'm focusing on at the moment, 
you could say that the Chinese government is simply setting itself up to waste billions of dollars over the next 10 years without fundamentally changing the industrial landscape. Um, because in many of these cases, um, it's the fundamental research and the systems integration, which is the challenge, not um, the funding. If we were to once more take semiconductors as an example, I think everyone has heard at this point of the importance of the Taiwanese firm TSMC, of the way in which Huawei can't make its own chips but relies on outsourcing to this particular Taiwanese company, which uses a particular machine made by a particular Dutch company, which in fact is a global monopoly. Um, that is the result again of maybe 30 or 40 years of fundamental research carried out by universities in Germany, in the Netherlands, um, by the national laboratories in the United States, um, University of California, Berkeley. Um, so these are technologies which you cannot simply replicate by making huge pots of money available. As one commentator put it, um, it's not like the internet platforms where you can simply hire a whole bunch of college graduates to code and see, right? These are, decade-long strategic technologies that need a lot of things to come together um, before you can even build a working prototype, never mind scale it up um, in a commercially competitive sense with industry leaders who may already control 80 to 90 percent of the market um, and reinforce their dominance by working with other industry leaders and by plowing their revenues back into R&D to stay ahead of the Chinese competition. Um, and this, of course, gets to the issue of whether, in fact, um, imposing more controls on exports of key technologies to China will achieve the desired effect of stunting Chinese progress or whether it will simply stimulate Chinese industry to, and the Chinese state to put in the necessary changes to catch up where so far it's actually been quite easy for them to rely on importing the required technologies and skills from abroad. Hmm. And I mean, John, there's been a lot of talk in this town, particularly about the drums of war in the Taiwan Strait. I mean, is there any way that um, this semiconductor company could shift the strategic calculus of China and its uh, timetable to uh, reunite or unite Taiwan with the mainland? The short answer is I think these issues need to be separated um, for a whole bunch of reasons. I don't think that even a successful invasion of Taiwan, which is a highly risky enterprise, even over the next five to 10 years for China, would solve their semiconductor problem. The semiconductor value chain is highly globalized. TSMC may be the industry leader in cutting edge fabrication, in making the most powerful computer processing chips, but it relies on technologies that are effectively oligopolized by US European, Japanese, South Korean companies. Um, not so much South Korea. In fact, they're more of a competitor to Taiwan. But um, the principle is that you cannot seize any one link of the chain and expect to be able to make the end product. This is an industry, and this goes, for, by the way, for the United States as well and the European Union. There's a whole debate over here over the need to reshore advanced fabrication, not just because of the supply chain disruptions which have been created by the pandemic, by the drought in Taiwan, and a number of other disruptions over the past two years, um, which have had serious deleterious effects on the auto sector, for example. So there's a lot of talk about digital sovereignty, strategic autonomy in Europe at the moment, and obviously the need to be able to make cutting-edge chips yourself instead of relying on a small island that happens to be on the edge of an earthquake fault zone and has a sovereignty claim to it by a country of 1.4 billion people with the world's second largest military budget across a small stretch of water um, has certainly got people's attention. To think that the Chinese, again, as Roger put it, can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and do this within a few years through sheer willpower and large sums of money is unrealistic. 
I just like to sort of add a little thing onto what John said uh, on the Huawei sanctions, which is that what we are seeing is something really interesting, where uh, in essence, what the United States has done is leverage its control over companies in a globalized economy to essentially deny or imperil the existence of a Chinese competitor. And this may well turn out to be a dangerous precedent exactly for the extraterritorial implications of some of the uh, Chinese technologies legislation that we're seeing, right? Uh, a lot of the new laws, including the, uh, the DAT security law, uh, contain tripwires that essentially say, you know, whenever a foreign government takes unjustified sanctions against China, we will respond. It's a very clear signal. So I think we should be wary of the extent to which we want to imperil uh, the so-called rules-based global order. What China does is it says there are some goods and services that we don't want on our market. You know, feel free to use them in the rest of the world. We don't want them. What the United States is saying, we don't want Huawei to exist and we're going to try and kill it stone dead. And we're going to use various means at our disposal to do so. And there's always that risk that, you know, if you do something now for a good reason, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, China might do the very same thing for what we would see as a bad reason. But at that point in time, you've really sort of lost uh, your moral authority. So in the measures that Western governments take, in order to respond to what they see as China challenge, um, I, I would advocate for certainly a measure of farsightedness and prudence. And when it comes to farsightedness and prudence, this is really something that I think Western governments can learn uh, from China. It seems to me that China is becoming, in a whole number of areas related to technology, a little bit of an international thought leader. And the reason that they are is because they very simply have asked very fundamental and very difficult questions sometimes about the role of technology in a society. And they were asking those questions 10, 15 years before we were, right? We were all uh, sort of partying around in our wonderful post-Cold War bliss, where we thought, you know, end of history, liberal democracy plus free market capitalism, we figured it out, we don't need to think about it anymore. Technology symbolized all of that, both the triumph of private sector innovation and, you know, do you remember when technology was going to set us all free and bring democracy to the darkest corners of the world? Oh, those days. China never had that post-Cold War period. So as China started to digitize, a whole number of questions that our governments are just now starting to pussyfoot around a little bit, China tackled head-on over a decade ago. And we don't necessarily need to agree with China's responses to those questions, for instance, on how you control content on the internet, to recognize that the fact that they asked those questions in the first place put them in a very forward-looking position, in comparison to which, you know, it's, it almost seems to me that we drove our societies like a rental car. So to give one example, uh, China believes that sovereignty in cyberspace should be the fundamental principle on global cyber governance. And put very briefly, the notion of cyber sovereignty is that borders exist in cyberspace as they exist in the real space. Within those borders, national governments have uh, the highest uh, legislative jurisdictional authority. And in order for there to be global internet governance, you in essence need to create a system where all of these governments negotiate rules of the roads, minimum standards, and so on and so forth. Um, for a very long time, the West rather objected to that because they, not without justification, saw this as a defensive effort from the Chinese side to essentially justify 
the Chinese model with its censorship, with its surveillance, and so on and so forth, uh, where, you know, the West proposed a free, open, and secure internet for the entire world. But in that, no one really addressed the question of how do you deal with legitimate political differences between governments on what should happen in their online space, right? And what we're seeing now is that the sovereignty discourse is increasingly being taken over in other countries. The European Union now talks about data sovereignty when it refers to things like the GDPR. It will refer to sovereignty when it talks about uh, the strategic autonomy that it, uh, that it claims to pursue. And so where sovereignty was a very dirty word five years ago in Brussels, it's now become fully embraced. And certainly, you know, the US hasn't embraced it rhetorically. But when you look at the things that the United States have been doing, you know, if these are not the acts of a sovereign state, that I don't know what they are. And a similar thing you're, you're seeing in other policy areas. Take a look at, for instance, the data security law. What the data security law does is, in essence, it says data generated through digital means, whether they are personal or not, may have very important implications on national security and the public interest. And we need to have a regulatory legislative framework in place to deal with that. Globally, this is an innovation. I'm not aware of any major digital power right now that has anything in terms of data protection beyond personal data protection. And obviously you have regimes around things like classified information, but that deals with one very particular subset of government-held information, whereas Chinese data security law recognizes that there are multiple data sets or multiple data categories that might have a major impact on national security, on the public interest, and we should be aware of that. Now, China is the only power who's doing that, to the best of my knowledge, which means that as other countries start confronting that question, particularly countries that you know aren't the West or like-minded countries, aren't necessarily allies with China, but China has an answer to a question that very many countries will start to ask, and we haven't. And this is really what we need to learn. We need to abandon our intellectual complacency and be far more audacious than we have been to tackle head-on the difficult questions that the impact of technology on our societies and our economies entail. Okay. I'm just going to go straight to the wrap-up question now, um, which I want a very short answer from each of you, starting with Angela. I mean, looking to the next five, 10 years, what does the future hold for the relationship between the Chinese state and these Chinese tech companies? Well, I mean, this current round of the law enforcement campaign against the big techs will incentivize these companies to further align themselves with the party's interests. And so I believe that these companies will, I mean, as a way of self-protection, we're trying to do more to enhance the national interest, uh, maybe to invest more in those foundational science and technology, as some of my panelists has pointed out. And um, we might also expect more wealth redistribution between the platform and the platform participants, like consumers, merchants, delivery drivers, because um, you know the increasing aggregation of wealth in the tech sector has also led to all sorts of social problems. So we, we might expect to see both the industrial policy and social policy may influence um, how the tech sector will be run in the ne near future. Well, to come back to Jack Ma, he used to like to say about the tech company's business model that as far as relations with the government went, he was supposed to be in love with them, but not marry them. 
I think that the Chinese state wants a bit more commitment these days. And this is in line, of course, with the general trend of politics since Xi Jinping took the top job that um, the unregulated space, essentially, these companies that we're talking about, the big internet platforms enjoyed for about a decade and a half is closing. And in future, their relationship with the Chinese state is going for better or worse, depending on where you sit, probably to look a lot more like Huawei's rather opaque relationship with the Chinese state than what we've seen so far. Um, they won't be given the choice, to put it bluntly. Um, mm -hmm. And we are going to see increasing control, exactly what the implications of that are, um, particularly since the Chinese authorities clearly see international integration and connections with the outside world as still a critical piece of this puzzle um, remains to be seen. But we shouldn't forget that these tech companies are hugely important for China, not just internationally because, you know, they may generate uh, new sources of export income. They are national champions. They represent China's uh, desire to move up the value chain. But also, if you look at it locally, companies like Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu have been really important supporters for government initiatives, right? So uh, the Chinese government has tried for years to get some more communication going between citizens and government. And hey, presto, suddenly you have social media like WeChat, like Weibo, which still exists. The Chinese government could have never built that itself. But by now, if you look at the number of official Weibo and WeChat accounts, which allow for a modicum of interaction and particularly on sort of very uh, sort of small local issues like, you know, the local zoo is mistreating its animals or there are a couple of potholes in my street. You know, in that sense, that really helps with creating the image of a government that can be responsive and solve everyday um, problems. Uh, a lot of government information systems run on technology provided by Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and so on and so forth. In other words, um, the Chinese government really, really needs those companies to exist and to function well, not just from an economic perspective, but also in terms of harnessing their abilities in the light of China's own e-governance uh, initiatives and, and the whole idea of the smart state uh, that China is now rolling out. So I still stand behind this notion that what we are seeing is a strategic nexus. But in a way, what's really happening is this is a relationship that has now been redefined and it's been unilaterally redefined by the most powerful of the parties that doesn't want to kill these companies stone dead, but it wants to signal very, very clearly uh, the boundaries of uh, what they can and cannot do. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests, Angela Jung, Roger Kremers, and John Lee. And a reminder, next month marks the 100th anniversary of the party and the 5th anniversary of the Little Red Podcast. To celebrate, Louisa and the rest of the Little Red Podcast team are busy putting together an episode where we put your questions to the experts. The winning question will receive a copy of Barbara Demick's book, Eating the Buddha, and a swag of Little Red Podcast merchandise. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Editing is by Andy Hazel. Background research by Julia Bergen and Xu Chong. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins. And our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Zeb Danta. Bye for now. <laughs>